This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from Washington, sitting in for Josh King, here's Matt Bennett. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. I'm Matt Bennett. I'm guest hosting this week for my friend Josh King. And in this episode, we're going to be exploring two very different aspects of polyoptics. One that takes place in front of the camera and played out for history, and one steeped in semi-secrecy that's behind the scenes. My first guest is Stuart Conley. He's a filmmaker and an author. And our focus today is going to be his work on a book called Behind the Dream that he co-wrote with a guy named Clarence Jones, who is a civil rights era legend and was Martin Luther King's closest road confidant and lawyer and speechwriter. Clarence Jones played a part in one of the most iconic moments in American history, King's I Have a Dream speech during the March on Washington, 1963, which is 50 years ago this summer. And Stuart will be here to tell us the incredible backstory of the march, how close they came to failure, and the very human stories of how that speech just barely came together before it became stitched into all of our consciousnesses. After that, we're going to go even further behind the scenes to the military aides who are always by the sides of the president and the vice president. Richard Klump is now an Air Force Brigadier General, but back when I worked with him in the 1990s, he was just a major, and he served as a mill aide to Vice President Gore. Rich and I flew a lot of miles together. We ate a lot of really bad food in some cramped holding rooms, and we lived through both the extraordinary excitement and the profound boredom that is life on the road with the president or the vice president. And in that capacity and others, Rich was an eyewitness to history, and he's got some great stories to tell. But first, we're going to start with the steamy summer of 1963. We're going to scroll back 50 years with Stuart Conley. Stuart, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here with you. We're delighted to have you. Tell us, when we think about King's I Have a Dream speech, it just seems like it popped, you know, fully formed into American history. But it wasn't like that at all. Tell us a little bit about how the march came together and then what happened with the speech. Well, yeah, Matt, that is the, the fundamentally fascinating thing to me about this, this uh, event is that, that it culminates with the, the iconography that everybody knows with, with King standing there at the, at the uh, foot of the great emancipator telling his story, talking about the dream, and it seems like it was a moment that was meant to happen. And what I was able to learn in the writing of this book with Dr. Jones is that so much of that was last minute and just like any other large-scale logistics or political endeavor, was fraught with confusion, was fraught with backbiting, was fraught with all sorts of conflicting agendas. And the purpose of, of the book, Behind the Dream, is to really not so much talk about how a speech came together, but in fact how an iconic moment in history uh, was, was sown by hand in a very short amount of time and the difference between what went on and what people think went on. Right. So the speech, the King speech, was actually the end of yeah. the March on Washington. And what happened with that march? I mean, here we are. It's 1963. The civil rights movement is in full flower, but it still has not succeeded with its most fundamental goals. Um, how, 
how did it come together? Was it clearly going to be a success? What were they thinking when they got to Washington? Well, it, it's interesting. First of all, it was a, uh, a financial um, situation for all the groups. They went out on a limb planning a march. And as I often like to say, you, you, you plan a, a party and you never know who's going to show up. You don't know if anybody's going to show up. And there's always that, that sort of sense of, you know, what if I throw a party and nobody comes? There was that feeling on an epic scale because it was in the days when communication was not the way it is now. And uh, there were many, many parties scattered all over the country. Uh, and it wasn't just one organization, although most people think of uh, the SCLC as being sort of the center of it all. But there were many civil rights organizations with leaders all working on something piecemeal. So the idea that it was strategically planned and very carefully executed, that's only half right. They tried to do that, but they really didn't know. So, so one of the things was that they set a date and they had to work backwards. They, they knew when they were going and they didn't quite have enough time uh, to plan it uh, you know, perfectly. But they knew they had to go. They were committed. And so they acted. And part of their decision to act was to, to ask Dr. King to basically step off of the stage of his work at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and kind of disappear. The idea was that he was, quote, unquote, going on vacation. But in fact, he joined uh, my co-author, Clarence Jones, at his house in Riverdale. And the idea was they were going to sort of plan out of the spotlight so they could really focus. And they thought they were planning in secret. What turned out to be, in fact, the case was that the FBI had wiretapped Clarence's phone, and they were listening in on all the plans. Which worked out well for you when you wrote your book, because then you got all that stuff. But one thing that's striking for the polyoptics listener, Josh talks about it all the time, is when you do a big political event, you got to make sure you fill the room. And they picked a heck of a room. I mean, the standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with the gigantic expanse of the mall in front of them, were they worried about the crowd size? Were they worried about uh, crime? Were they worried about cost? W- what were the things uh, going on logistically that they were most concerned about? Well, f- first of all, I, uh, uh, that's a great question. I just have to take you back one step before that, because as iconic as that as that image is, it's burned into all of our minds. And remember, this, this took place on the, on the uh, 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. So what better location than at the Lincoln Memorial? But in fact, the original plan didn't include the Lincoln Memorial. And we look back on that and you think, oh, oh, how could that not be a slam dunk? They were actually planning on marching to the Capitol because a, a large contingent of the people involved in this felt that this was really a legislative issue first and foremost. And it was only uh, uh, in discussions with the president, Kennedy, at the time, uh, who basically said that he would not support anything that made it feel like there was, in his words, a gun held to the head of the government. And so they reluctantly decided that they needed to find another location. And it turned out, of course, to be the perfect one in the shadow of the great emancipator. So it's, it's one of those happy accidents of history that you, you look back and in retrospect you say, well, of course that should have happened, but it almost didn't. Uh, and so to answer your, your other question, yes, there was a, a huge um, weight on their shoulders about filling the room. And they did have everything, everything that they um, could think of to do in order to get people there. 
buses. They, were, they hired buses and, and they chartered planes. They, they put all this money into making it as easy as possible for people to come. And they would get reports on sort of a, you know, a couple times a week from, from various organizations all across the country. And the reports were always alarming and disturbing. And they, were, they would say, yeah, people are not, not going to make the trip. They're not that excited. They don't really see what it's going to be all about. And it was very stressful. Um, another part of this, of course, uh, was the economics. And um, part of how they intended to pay back a lot of the, the money that they were using to finance these buses and planes and so forth was through the sale of souvenirs. And if you don't have people at the show, they're not going to go home with the programs. So this was of great concern. And it wasn't really until the morning of the event itself where they had spotters along the, uh, the, the highways and turnpikes you know, outside of the Washington area that were reporting in from pay phones saying we're seeing the buses coming in, they're filled, they've got streamers on them. They finally started to get a sense that this was going to work. You know, just relating that put a pit in my stomach as a Josh and I started our careers doing crowd building for political events. And it is the most nerve wracking feeling of all time when you look out over your gigantic empty site and the press start coming in and the people haven't arrived yet. So that must have been one uh, whale of a feeling when they started getting those reports in. It is fascinating. Um, you know, as an outsider, I know people tune into television and they, and they think what they're seeing is just what's going on and it would have happened no matter what. But, of course, there is a lot of strategy, as you know, that goes into putting your best foot forward and, and making the image resonate inside that television frame. It's, it's really fascinating and it's, it's its own art form for sure. Um, tell us about what was happening with the preparations for the speeches, you, you tell extraordinary stories in the book about not only the drafting of King's speech, but also the personalities involved. Uh, but before you start, tell us a little bit about Clarence Jones, your co-author, and what he meant to Dr. King. Uh, Clar- Clarence Jones was um, uh, uh, is an extraordinary man. He's 82 years old now, and he's teaching at the uh, uh, King Institute at Stanford currently. Uh, just a marvelous, um, marvelous guy. And he was one of those rare uh, advisors that um, has the ear of the leader and yet is not part of the organization that has to deal with the, the office politics of the, the group that the leader runs. So he had one of those dotted line consultant-like roles versus the very typical, you know, hierarchy of a business. And the SCLC was a, a, you know, a business, and it had its own office politics. And here's Clarence, who comes along above it. He met, he met Dr. King uh, in 1960 when uh, Dr. King was defending himself against some, uh, some tax fraud allegations, which were trumped up in order to discredit him. And he insisted that Clarence, who at the time was an entertainment attorney, uh, just a young guy out of school, he insisted that he wanted somebody like Clarence uh, to, to volunteer his time and work with him. And one of the most interesting things is that uh, Clarence refused at first. He uh, was just starting his career. He had just moved to California. He um, was starting a family. And uh, Dr. King made a personal visit to his house to, to beg him to, to become part of the team, and he refused. And it wasn't until... After, uh, after Dr. King left, that, that Clarence's wife berated him and said, you have got to help this man. And he, he did, and uh, they became sort of inseparable thereafter. 
Now, Clarence, again, wasn't part of the organization, so he would come in, be very strategic, but he also had a life outside it, uh, and that also amounted to a lot of fundraising for Dr. King's efforts. So he's known in some circles as the bagman of the civil rights movement for that reason. You don't you have space for it in the book, but uh, Clarence, as uh, you know from putting together a documentary on him, has just had an incredible life. He's been like the zealot of American history. He's been in the middle of an, just an amazing array of things over time. But let's uh, take us to the days before the speech and uh, the lobby of the Willard Hotel where the leaders of the civil rights movement were gathered to, to hammer things out. What was going on? Right. Well, so we remember the March on Washington primarily for that closing speech and the I Have a Dream, and it seems like everything was built around it. So the, the truth of the matter was all Dr. King's time, as well as Clarence and Stanley Levinson, his other very close advisor, uh, all their time was spent on the economics, the logistics, sorting through how we were going to get everybody there. And essentially, what Dr. King was going to say or how he was going to deliver a message was almost the last thing. That, that they were worried about. So there they were. They were in Washington. It was the night before the march. Uh, they were just getting settled in, and the uh, leadership committee, the, the uh, steering committee for the march on Washington, met in the uh, lobby of the Willard Hotel. And Clarence asked for some privacy, so the porters moved some potted plants and kind of gave them a little alcove, brought a phone in so they could use it, and then they started throwing around ideas. So you can imagine these are these are very um, very influential leaders in all different areas of the civil rights movement. They all have different takes. Many of them are religious. Some some are not. Some are more radical than others. Everybody has ideas about about what Dr. King should say and how he should say it. Should he be a preacher? Are people there to see him do a, a, a church service, or should it be more secular? Everybody has an opinion, and uh, Dr. King asked Clarence to start taking notes and try to put things you know, together and sort of keep tabs on, on what everybody thinks. Now, everybody agreed, of course, that King was the leader and he would speak last, right? That, that seems self-evident in retrospect that, that Martin Luther King, the icon, the leader, uh, would go last because he was the most important guy. Is that how it looked at the time? You, you would think so. Um, it was actually, it was, um, it was in, in the days leading up to the actual march, they were still debating the order of, of the speakers. And again, these were, these were all leaders. They all had skin in the game. They all had egos. And to, to, be, to be quite frank about it, there was some resentment over the image that Dr. King had as the leader, quote-unquote, of the civil rights movement. Um, all these people were, were very powerful in their own groups. You know, we're talking about the NAACP, we're talking about CORE, we're talking about SNCC. Um, and so there was this sense of, well, who says? Who says you get to be the, uh, uh, the um, headlining act, you could, you could say? It was actually Clarence that called the meeting and basically, you know, put his foot down and said, believe me, none of you wants to follow Martin Luther King. Uh, and that turned out to be true. So tell us about the King speech and how that came together. You have us uh, in the lobby. These guys are gathered around. They're sweating. It's hot out. Uh, they're, they're behind a bunch of potted plants, and they're trying to sort out what is about to become, just hours later, what may be 
the greatest speech in American history. How did that happen? It's, it's fascinating. Uh, it, it, so eventually, with, with all these sort of note cards and illegal pads, you know, filled with everybody's different sort of factoid opinions, little sound bites, and you've got to say this and you gotta, can't say this, nobody, nobody was presenting a speech. They were all just presenting ideas, and Clarence was, was kind of trying to keep up with everything. After a while, uh, Dr. King asked Clarence to excuse himself to go up to his room and to prepare a draft of what Clarence considered was the right direction to go in based on all this feedback. So up, upstairs, Clarence goes. No typewriter, nothing but legal pads and pens. And he stays up in his room for a couple hours, and he tries to put together what he thinks is the best version, uh, knowing Dr. King and also knowing all the different factions and, and what's important to everybody and trying to sort of sew it together in a patchwork way, which is never an easy task, particularly without a word processor, right? So there he is, and one of the ideas that he gets in his head is about this idea of cashing a check, of, of making a, a payment demand and not getting the payment. This actually echoes back to uh, an event that had happened earlier wherein he needed to take money from Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York at the time, and to bail some people out of, uh, out of jail in Birmingham. Uh, and there he was taking money from the, the, the bank that, that um, the governor owned with his family, and the, uh, the head of the bank asked Clarence to sign a demand note which basically said that he was personally responsible for paying this money back at the second they asked for it. And Clarence said, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't be here if I had this kind of money. And uh, they said, you ha- you can't, we can't let you take the money without signing this demand note. He signed it, not knowing what was going to happen, and he left with the bail money. And the next day, that note was returned to him said pay- saying paid in full across the front. And he had remembered that, idea, that notion of this sort of Damocles of having a demand and having something that you have to pay for. So, in fact, an early part of the speech, which you will hear directly coming from Clarence, is the idea of the Negro people coming to cash a check and the Bank of Justice having insufficient funds. And, in fact, we have clipped a, that portion of the speech, not the iconic portion, but one that Clarence actually wrote in that steamy hotel room that night. Uh, let's, yeah. let's listen to that clip. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Stuart, yes. that's not the part of the speech people remember. No, and, it's, no, it's not. And Clarence will be the first one to tell you that. So what happened? How did they get... Uh, so we've got Clarence writing it on, out longhand. Then uh, take us through the, the few steps that got us to the podium. Right. So, so Clarence finishes up what he considers 
uh, his best version of a draft, and knowing that he's written speeches for Dr. King on multiple occasions, and, and King takes them, considers them, works them over, and makes them his own. That's the process. So he brings, he brings down his handwritten pages, and uh, Dr. King thanks him, thanks everybody else, and retires to, to consider it, to consider everything. So the next day, uh, Clarence wakes up with an idea, and this is a very unusual idea. He wakes up thinking like a lawyer and thinking in particular like an like a intellectual property lawyer, which is how he was trained, that this speech, because of the event, not because of his writing, but because of the magnitude or potential magnitude of the event, may have value. And he knows that with speeches, as soon as you say them and as soon as they're reported in the press, you lose your opportunity to copyright the speech. Um, so that's why uh, there are no political speeches that are copyrighted. They're in the public domain. But Clarence thinks maybe we have something of value here. So he wanders over to the press tent, and he finds every copy of the speech, about 70 copies in folders, and he starts making one of those little Cs with a circle around every single copy. He gets interns to help him, and people think he's crazy, but he wants to preemptively control that copyright. Now, he doesn't read the speech at the time, but if he had, he would have realized that it was verbatim what he had written down in longhand the night before. King, either not having enough time or being very satisfied with it, or there, 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 we don't know the reason why, but he basically passed through what Clarence gave to the typist, and that became the speech. And then that became part of the speech, that, as we just heard, that he delivered. Right. But he changes gears at one point and, and ends the speech in the way that every single American, basically above the age of five, knows. Right. And how did that happen? Right. So there's, there's, two, there's two interesting parts of the speech. Uh, as you may have heard, if, if you were listening closely uh, to the, the sound clip there, the crowd was not exactly ecstatic over that idea of, the, of the, the promissory note and the insufficient funds. Dr. King started reading the text that Clarence had prepared, essentially verbatim, and one could say that it wasn't going so well. It was not what the crowd was expecting. It was a perfectly fine speech, but it wasn't the I have a dream speech that we know. Now, very few people know this, but Dr. King had actually used the phrase, I have a dream, in an earlier speech. This one was in Detroit, and it was about three or four months previous. It was in the, early, you know, in the, in the spring of that same year, and nobody blinked at it. They just kind of fell on deaf ears. Um, this tells us something about the power of words and context. But King was known for, for having phrases and repurposing them and, and taking parts of different speeches and, and kind of absorbing them and changing them. It's sort of a jazz style. Um, and so there was an audience member who had been at uh, the Detroit um, speech who it, that phrase did resonate with. She was very close to the podium, and she was a friend of, of uh, Dr. King's. And so about seven or eight paragraphs into the speech that Clarence had written that was going, but it was somewhat dry. She shouted out, and this is Mahalia Jackson, shouted out, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. She had remembered it, even though nobody else had. And you actually can see in the video, when you watch it, you can see 
Dr. King's posture change. You can see him push aside his prepared text, and you can see his posture completely change, and he becomes the order that we all know. And the balance of the speech is improvised. It's improvised around that, that rhythm of I have a dream. And there are bits and pieces from other, um, other speeches that he had used, but it was all extemporaneous from that point on. And the crowd went wild. The greatest ad lib in American history, without question. Uh, it's an amazing story. Uh, couldn't recommend the book more highly. It's called Behind the Dream by Stuart Conley and Clarence Jones. Uh, Want to just change gears very quickly. Uh, Stuart, as I noted at the outset, is a filmmaker as well as an author. Uh, he's got a film uh, that really delves into the issue of racial politics. Tell us very briefly about that and what's happening with it. Yes, well, um, I'm... Uh... Thanks for bringing that up, Matt. I am a, uh, not a historian by trade. I kind of tried to write um, Behind the Dream as if it were a thriller in some respects. And um, that really is my genre. So uh, delving into the African-American experience and the experience of racism and getting so close to Clarence Jones, who has been there from Jim Crow to Barack Obama and seen it all from the inside, uh, has radicalized me in some respects. And it's, I'm very passionate about, about the issue of racism. And what I was interested in doing was, instead of another history book, or instead of finding another character uh, from history whose story I could tell, I wanted to use my talents as a, as a fiction writer to explore that, the area in a, in a different framework. So, yes, this uh, past summer... Uh, we made an independent film called The Suspect, and it stars uh, Mackay Pfeiffer and William Sadler. And we just found out the other day that we have been accepted into competition at the American Black Film Festival in Miami uh, in June. I saw William Sadler in a slightly bigger release film this summer. Uh, everybody uh, who saw Iron Man 3 played the president, I believe. So, <laughs> yes. My, my nine-year-old daughter saw Iron Man 3 uh, at a birthday party, and she told all her kids, uh, uh, I, I knew Bill Sadler when he was just a sheriff. Before he was president. Uh, Before he was president. Stuart Conley, the author of Behind the Dream, thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics. A pleasure, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Well, welcome back to Polyoptics. I'm Matt Bennett, filling in for my friend Josh King. And in this episode, we have just heard from Stuart Conley, who told us about the story behind the I Have a Dream speech, one of the most famous speeches in American history. We're going to move from a speech everyone knows to the story of some people that are somewhat uh, behind the scenes. They're cloaked in semi-secrecy. It's the military aides to the president and to the vice president. And my guest now is an old friend of mine, Richard Klump. Uh, General Klump is now a very senior member of the military, but back when I worked with him in the 90s, he was a major. He was working as the military aide or one of the military aides to then-Vice President Gore. Uh, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Matt. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, you hadn't told me that I was going to be following Martin Luther King, uh, so we'll see if we can keep up, but I'll do my best. I didn't actually have King on as the guest, although well, that would have been that awesome. Been. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, no, it's uh, it's great to have you here. And I think this is a topic that is of real fascination to listeners to polyoptics. Uh, military aides are sometimes portrayed in movies, usually in grossly incorrect ways. Uh, but people don't really know much about what a military aide does. And recognizing you haven't done the job in over a decade, uh, tell us basically what a military aide is. Okay. Well, first of all, my, my favorite uh, movie was the Harrison Ford coming out of Air Force One in the pod. I always thought that was kind of cool. Uh, military aides were there to uh, essentially help the president when there's national emergencies. And so um, we're going to work with him to keep him connected back to the uh, Secretary of Defense, the Defense Department. And uh, if something really bad happens where uh, we're under some sort of a, a big attack, then we're going to help the president uh uh, do the appropriate response and get with the right people to make sure that uh, that he can do that. And that's kind of the big picture thing. Now, what happens is that almost never happens. 9-11 is a big exception. But in general, our day-to-day existence is there to, to sort of help with the logistics, help to make sure that all of the um, pieces that go together to help the president get from A to B, at least the military pieces of it, uh, work smoothly so that no matter what happens, he's able to get where he needs to go when he needs to be there. Right. And what people may not realize, I think if they thought about it, they'd, they'd see this, but the president and the vice president are surrounded by the military all the time. They, they're flown by Marines in helicopters. They're flown by the Air Force in their uh, jets. They're sometimes flown by the Army Guard, at least the vice president is. Uh, in helicopters. They have military people throughout the White House playing uh, all sorts of different roles. Uh, is the military aid to the president or vice president kind of a liaison between the civilians who work for the White House and those military folks? Uh, a little bit. I mean, there's a there's an organization called the White House Military Office, which is the real go-between between the president's staff and the military. And the military aides are just an extension of that uh, when we're out on the road or basically outside of the outside of the White House itself. Um, but once we're out there on the road, we're the ones that are sort of working with the communications folks, working with the transportation folks. Uh, we work closely with the Secret Service and the things that they're doing just to make sure that uh, that the president is able to do the things he needs to do to represent the country. So it's pretty clear why the president has military aides. Why does the vice president need a military aid or well, aides? I think uh, you probably just you have to look back to to Kennedy, and when Kennedy was assassinated, uh, Lyndon Johnson was essentially inaugurated uh, as the president within hours, and the military aide was somebody who helped facilitate that. And so if for uh, some bad reason uh, the president is no longer able to be the president, then the vice president has to be able to step into that position immediately. And so everything that the president has access to in order to do the job, the vice president also has to have access to in order to do the job if he needs to. Let's talk about some kind of basics about uh, what it is to be a military aide. First of all, how many of them are there for the president or the vice president, and uh, how are they selected? So that's kind of interesting. When when I started as a military aide, there were five uh, military aides for the president, one from each of the services plus the Coast Guard. On the vice president's side, there were just two of us, uh, myself at the time and, and an Army major, uh, Laura Richardson, who's also actually made it up to Brigadier General now. And... Uh, the difference being that for the president, the military aides were with him 24-7, and for the vice president, we were with him 
when he was outside the Beltway and when he was in the White House because we were in the building next door. But if he was traveling around inside the Beltway, we didn't go with him and we didn't stay with him overnight. And uh, the folks who were middle-aged just before me recognized, along with Whammo, that that was a problem, that we needed to, to be with them all the time. Whammo being the White House military I'm office. sorry, the White House military office. Military right. guys love their acronyms. And I work really hard not to talk <laughs> in acronyms, but yeah. So the, the White House military office. And they realized that they needed to, to step it up so that, uh, so that the president or the vice president had, uh, had five military aides as well, because five is the right number to cover 24-7 you know, 365 days a year. And so we worked uh, with, at the time, Vice President Gore's staff. He was running for president, so there was some sensitivity to increasing staff. And so we coordinated it so that we went from two to five as the transition happened from the Clinton administration to the Bush administration. And when Vice President Cheney showed up, uh, there were five military aides. And, and that turned out to be prescient, obviously, on 9-11 when, uh, as you pointed out earlier, there was a moment where the vice president needed as much support as he could possibly get uh, from the military. Right. The, um, the the Bush staff was a little bit unsure, and in this case Cheney, of whether he actually needed five military aides or not and needed that much coverage. And uh, and they were working through whether they would keep that or not when 9-11 happened. And obviously... Uh, on 9-11, there was a lot of activities by Vice President Cheney from the White House, and the military aides were there. Uh, the folks that I'd help uh, hire on were there with them every step of the way and really made a big difference to, to his actions on that day. So as I've discovered, having worked with you and, and Laura and other military aides to the vice president and some to the president when I was in the White House, uh, you are... Um, high achievers. You're now a general. Laura's a general. Uh, your predecessor is a general. Uh, how are you chosen to be military aides? So back when I applied for the military aid job, uh, the Air Force had a system where folks basically volunteered for the jobs that they were interested in. And even for important jobs like this, they still sort of allowed folks to say, yeah, I'd like to throw my hat in on that. And apparently they had... Um, had about five or six folks that were interested, and they were high-quality folks as well, and they passed those names to the White House. But for whatever reason, the White House looked at them and didn't think they had the right background or the right uh, capability. So they tossed it back to the Air Force. And the Air Force, in their infinite wisdom at that point, uh, they talked amongst themselves and thought, okay, what is Vice President Gore going to be looking for in a military aide? And they sort of picked out five or six different characteristics, and then they went through the Air Force and they picked out about five of us who had met those characteristics, and they called us up. And um, at the time, I was working at the United Nations in New York, and uh, and I was dating uh, the woman who would become my wife. And I got a call, and they said, hey, we'd like you to interview to be a military aide to the vice president. And my wife, who had a musical theater background at the time, she was in law school, but she didn't really understand the military very well. And she said, well, the vice president of what? Thinking there was a vice president of the Air Force. And I said, I think they're talking about the vice president of the United States. And and so I ended up coming down and, and going through a process with the staff where I interviewed with the current mill aides, interviewed with some of the staff members, and eventually made it through several cuts and, and interviewed with Vice President Gore for a few minutes just to make sure that I didn't drool on myself and could put two coherent sentences together, and, uh, and I got picked. Now what they do is they have what's called a, a star nomination process where uh, the folks who are interested have to be nominated by a senior Air Force member, and then they, they still call the group down to a handful and push them forward to the White House. As I discovered, 
when I was traveling with the vice president with you, um, the role of the vice president's mill aide in some ways is richer and, and more interesting than the role of the president's mill aide because the president always has a huge entourage. He always has people with him from his civilian national security staff, for example. A lot of the times when we were traveling, you were it. You were the national security staffer for the vice president. Talk a little bit about what that kind of dual role looked like. So it, it's different really for every administration. So obviously my experience was primarily with Vice President Gore and a little bit with Vice President Cheney. But under Vice President Gore, uh, he was not traveling uh, with a lot of his national security staff. And so part of the hiring process was I interviewed with his national security advisor, uh, Mr. Leon Firth, and uh, and they made sure that I was a good uh, a good fit with Mr. Firth and, and Leon's an interesting character, well known throughout D.C. and uh, and we hit it off pretty well, so so that worked out. But whenever the vice president was on the road, uh, if national security issues came up, then I was the one who would have to brief him and make sure that he was up to speed on what was going on. I think sort of the most compelling uh, example of that was, uh, you know, towards the end of the campaign, they had the uh, the terrorists who attacked the. The USS Cole and and killed several of our of our sailors, and the vice president wanted to call the families and pass along his condolences. And so I had to work with the with the DoD and get the names, and then call up all the family members and and make sure that they were ready for the call and that they wanted to take the call from the vice president. And uh, and that was pretty tough, obviously, because they were going through some pretty difficult time. And in fact, at the time we were making the calls, um, we. We were pretty sure about the number of casualties and the and the types of casualties wounded and killed in action, but um, but they hadn't officially uh, decided on all of them, and so some of them just weren't ready to have that conversation yet. It's an amazing job in its in its breadth. I mean, you were charged with uh, really the crown jewels of American secrets, the the, the most secrets. Uh, secret things that we have, uh, and you had to safeguard those. You had to travel with the vice president, take care of fairly mundane things. You had to uh, deal with politics. I mean, you were, uh, as you noted, traveling with Gore when he was running for president, uh, and you were coming from an institution that was pretty insulated from politics. How was that for you? So for me, it was it was really cool and. That's mainly because I'm kind of a policy politics wonk. I was a political science major at the Air Force Academy, and then I went to grad school right after that and uh, went to the Kennedy School at Harvard where they do public policy. And so, you know, coming 10 years later, 12 years later, to actually stand in the middle of uh, a presidential campaign, and especially one as as historic as the 2000 campaign, uh, to me it was like just it was going back to college and and being in the middle of a, a lab. You know, it was every day watching the way you and the rest of the staff uh, worked with the vice president to to get him to the right place to to talk to the people and you know figure out which states were important and and all of that i just was fascinated by it and the hardest thing for me about being a mill aide was standing there and keeping my mouth shut about what was going on because i i found it really interesting and you know i'm i'm kind of an opinionated guy and i had lots of opinions about the way things were going but but because we are neutral as you pointed out uh, I just had to stand back and watch, and uh, I felt a little like Forrest Gump, sort of, you know, I was everywhere that things were going on, but I wasn't really part of it. I was just there in the background. Uh, that's really interesting. And uh, you were with a group of people, none of the rest of us kept our mouths shut basically ever, so that was a, quite a feat for you to pull off. Talk a little bit about your career before you got to 
the job. But then after, you you essentially changed seats on Air Force Two. You stuck around, but in a very different capacity. Right. I was uh, I was fortunate at the time that I was uh, I was an airlift pilot in the, in the Air Force, flying transports, and the guys who were flying our our DVs, our distinguished visitors or senior officials around uh, were primarily uh, airlift pilots. We had some tanker pilots, but basically heavy pilots in the Air Force. And they were doing this mission over at Andrews Air Force Base, not just the vice president, but we also flew the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, senior congressional leaders, senior military leaders. You know, the president gets a plane that's dedicated to him. The vice president has to share his plane uh, with lots of other folks. And as we saw during the campaign, you know, there's some some give and take on that because the Secretary of State might need it to go to an important meeting overseas. The vice president's, you know, running for office or he's got important meetings, uh, part of his official duties. And so, you know, there's a limited number of those airplanes and making sure that we share them out right. Uh, that, that was part of WAMO's job, uh, the White House military office. Uh, but I was fortunate to get the opportunity then to go over to that unit at Andrews and first just to fly with them, uh, and then to be the commander of the squadron that flew primarily the vice president and the secretary of state. And that was really neat because uh, you get to see the other part of that mission. You know, you, we've talked about the part where we're we're trying to get the, the vice president where he needs to go. Well, when you're the ones in the front of the plane and, you know, a lot of times if the weather's bad, you're going to divert. Uh, but when you got the vice president and he needs to get to London or he needs to get to New York City, he doesn't really want to go to to Frankfurt or to Boston, you know, and so you've really got to work hard to make sure that you get him where he needs to go and you work the weather and you work all the different protocols to, to make sure he gets where he, he wants to go. And, and so it was kind of a neat opportunity to be on both sides of that mission. Yeah, I, I have to say I was always stunned by how well uh, airlift operations functions, how qui- how on time they always were, and how they basically always complete the mission. It was really uh, quite unbelievable. Uh, before you changed jobs, and while you were still mill aide, uh, the the uh, vice president's job changed. You were there uh, not only for the campaign, but for that crazy transition where nobody knew who was going to be president. And then ultimately when the vice, vice president Gore conceded the race, and then you were there for the arrival of Vice President Cheney. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was uh, it was a really interesting time when when they had the election itself, the election day. Both Laura and I went with the vice president. Laura uh, was the Laura other was military the other, aide. Other military aide went with the vice president to Nashville, and so we were both there in the hotel uh, the night of the election. And Laura was on duty; uh, I was off duty, and so um, you know we got. To, I actually had my wife come in, fly in. We paid to get her there, and and because it was a pretty historic moment. And uh, and so we were in our room, and we were up. It was you know eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, one o'clock, and finally we just said, you know, we're exhausted. We got to go to bed. And uh, about three thirty in the morning or so, uh, I woke up, and I think that was about the time when when uh, there was a concession, and then the concession was withdrawn. And uh, and Laura was actually there with the vice president and the staff when that phone call happened between him and President Bush. And I won't go into the details, but suffice it to say that that was a really interesting phone call. And then the next six weeks while we were watching, uh, you know, the, the whole thing with Florida and then the Supreme Court, you know, the vice president sort of went into seclusion a little bit from the political side. He was obviously still doing his official duties, but, uh, you know, we were all like everybody else in the country, just kind of waiting to see what happened. And, uh, and eventually that uh, that historic uh, Supreme Court decision and 
and Gore and, and Cheney came in. And so when uh, when Vice President Cheney was doing the transition on Inauguration Day, Laura was with Vice President Gore and I was with Vice President Cheney. And, and part of the duties uh, at the start were to kind of brief him on, on what the middle-aged did and why we were there and some of our uh, you know, continuity of government duties. And I started to go into my spiel with Vice President Cheney and and he gently reminded me that uh, that he had been the Secretary of Defense and he was kind of involved in writing those procedures way back when, when he was the SecDef. And so we, we went on to talk about how our families were doing and how the weather was and <laughs> some of those things. I mean, it's, it's worth noting, you say you were sort of an observer to history on the politics, uh, and that is true. But uh, Laura Richardson went on to fight in Iraq. Uh, she was on the cover of uh, Time Magazine as uh, one of the first, I believe, brigade commanders, well, female brigade commanders uh, ever to go into war. Her husband was also deployed at the same time. So that had real-life consequences, that election did, uh, for her and for you, obviously. Um, and so it, it was just a very interesting um, dichotomy for you to, to be watching something as an observer, but also be a real participant in it, too. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, kind of one of the things about moving over to Andrews into that job is, you know, we were flying around Secretary of State uh, Powell. I, I did uh, a couple of missions where he was doing some shuttle diplomacy in Israel and uh, in Jordan and Lebanon. Uh, you know, we were flying the, so I flew Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld into into the, to the um, uh, I guess, AOR, Area of Responsibility, basically where the fight was going on during the Iraq war. Uh, we flew him directly in there. So, so yes, you know, you're, you're the observer to history, but you're also helping that history to happen. Was there a, you weren't playing the role of military aid uh, during wartime, but you were still directly in contact with the senior elected officials, with the vice president, often, as you noted, with the secretary of state. Was there a difference in body language among the the staff, among the principals that you worked with, were, were things just profoundly different after 9-11 in terms of how they went about doing their business? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I'd have to say no. I think everybody who's working in the White House understands the significance of what they're doing, whether we're at war or not. Now, obviously, 9-11 was, you know, everything was different in the country then. So to the extent that, that the White House staff mirrors uh, mirrors our country, and it really does. It's a cross-section of America. They were feeling that, and they had family members, plenty of folks. In fact, we were talking about uh, uh, one of our comrades on Gore staff, uh, Paul Cusack, who's who's in the Army now and, and and has deployed to Afghanistan multiple times. So, you know, it's, it's not, uh, I don't think it's different. It's just the things that they were stressed out about were different types of things. But the, the level of stress at the White House is, is high no matter what you're doing. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, and did you notice, uh, you don't have to tell any stories out of school, but did you notice a cultural difference between uh, the two staffs, the Gore staff uh, and the Cheney staff? I mean, were they a lot more buttoned up than we were? I mean, were there things that, that jumped out at you as, as a kind of neutral observer to, to both teams? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I think, you know, one of the keys with the with the Clinton and, and Gore White House is I don't think that they had brought a lot of folks on from the Carter presidency. It was long enough prior to that that uh, that most of the folks, you know, it was a young team that helped Clinton get elected. And so there were a lot of young folks in the White House. You know, you know as well as anybody, the pay uh, is not great and the hours are long. And so 
a lot of times what you find on a, on a presidential staff is a lot of hungry young folks right out of college who are trying to make a name for themselves, and, and really they're part of a cause. Uh, when the, Cheney, or the Bush-Cheney folks came in, a lot of them had served with uh, the first Bush in his White House, and so they were a little older, a little more senior. They had done it before, so they kind of felt like they knew what they were getting themselves into. And so, from that perspective, I think it was just it was a different type of energy. Mm. Um, they just they felt um, sort of older and more experienced, uh, and the mm. Gore folks were younger and enthusiastic, and they you know they did great work, and they they were doing the best they could. Um, as well, I mean, I don't think in terms of talent there was any difference. It was just kind of a almost a generational difference more than anything. Have you got any stories that you tell about life on the road, either with uh, Gore or Cheney, that that particularly struck you? You talked in general terms about uh, what it was like to to be traveling with Gore. Uh, we went to endless, countless rallies and house uh, meetings and fundraisers and. Uh, what I found about life on the road was um, you would get off the plane, get into the motorcade, drive through an identical, every city looks the same now. It's, a, it's the Home Depot and the strip malls and you end up at the back of a hotel and you go in and you do a thing and you come out and you go back to the ho- plane and you take off and do the same thing again three more times. Were there anything that kind of stood out as part of all that for you? So there, I'd, I'd say there's two, I think, good stories that I can tell. Uh, one time, and what you find when you're on the road in a presidential campaign, that the candidates are rock stars, and and they're uh, aligned. There's a lot of people, uh, famous people, that are uh, on on both sides, either the Republicans or the Democrats. And obviously, there was a no shortage of famous folks who were supporting uh, Vice President Gore. And and there was one time where John Bon Jovi was actually in the motorcade with us, and he was riding along in the car that I was in, uh, along with Mike Feldman, another good friend of ours. And uh, and we were talking, and he he commented, I've got a somewhat unusual voice. I think everybody can tell that. And he, he made a comment about my voice, and I said something along the lines of, yeah, you know, if I was in your business, I'd probably be like Rod Stewart. And he just kind of looked at me and said, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> Thanks, John. Uh, I, the other really neat story for me was uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I went to uh, Catholic schools growing up. Uh, I went to a small um, Catholic grammar school uh, a K through eight grammar school uh, in in uh, one of the Los Angeles suburbs, and uh, there was a point where the vice president needed to talk to the the uh, Archbishop of Los Angeles. Uh, I think it was Cardinal O'Connor at the time, uh, one of the cardinals. I probably got the name wrong. And so we set up a no notice meet, and it just happened that this meeting was at this school that I went through fifth through eighth grade at. And you know, the funny thing for me is I'm walking around with the staff is how much smaller the school looked than it did when I was, you know, 14 years old than it did uh, when I was 35. What an amazing way to go back to your elementary school. Yep. Um, so we talked a little bit about what you did after you uh, finished up being a military aide. You were a pilot for Air Force Two and for other um, distinguished visitor missions. And then you commanded the squadron. Uh, what, what have you been doing since then? Well, I had a pretty neat opportunity to command an entire Air Force wing where we did pilot training. So we'd take in about 500 young lieutenants and, and help them get through their sort of initial pilot training and, and become Air Force pilots, put their wings on them. Uh, I had a neat opportunity to do something that was completely out of my wheelhouse, which was a missile defense. Uh, pretty interesting time. We were talking about missile defense in Europe. We were talking about missile defense as it related to, to uh, the North Koreans. And so that was kind of neat. 
Uh, and then most recently, before my current job, I spent a year in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, you talked about how the, the decisions of uh, and the, the events of 9-11 impacted us even years later. And we were still in Afghanistan, and, and we still are. And I spent a year on the staff of General John Allen as his liaison to Ambassador Ryan Crocker in the embassy there in Afghanistan. Just got back last August. And, uh, you know, that was at least as interesting as as the mill aid job. You know, you're watching history being made. You're watching these two great Americans trying to deal with some really different, difficult situations at a time where the focus was kind of shifting away from Afghanistan. And they're trying to to help us and help our country understand that there's still Americans that were fighting and dying there and that we're still trying to do important things to help Afghanistan uh, continue to get up on its feet. And, uh, and that was really neat. Uh, and General Allen and Ambassador Crocker, neither of them shrinking violets. Uh, that must have been an interesting uh, job to have to kind of shuttle between those two, uh, let's say, strong personalities. Well, you know, they they were great friends from their time in Iraq together when General Allen was in Ambar and doing uh, the awakening, and Ambassador Crocker was obviously ambassador in Iraq. And he was he was an ambassador in uh, in Lebanon when the Marine Corps barracks were hit. He was an ambassador in Syria when the embassy there was bombed, and then he was in uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and also Kuwait. So he's been in some of the most difficult places as an ambassador. He has more credibility with the military than just about anyone. And he and General Allen were great friends, but you know there there were times when they clashed too, and it it's just it's the nature of things. It was a tough time. There were some tough issues with uh, President Karzai, and and they were working through them, and and they always came out the other side of their disagreements still the best of friends and, and great partners. Circling back before we have to close to your job as a mill aide, uh, if you had to tell a young or a kind of mid career officer who's going in to be a mill aide uh, right now for Vice President Biden or President Obama, what what would be the one piece of advice you would give them non-classified about being a military aide? Uh, I'd say just go for it and enjoy it. I actually have one of my guys who's who's in the process of applying for the Air Force nomination for to take the current military's place. And, uh, you know, you're, you're going to see things and do things that you never would have imagined. You know, I grew up, like I said, in Los Angeles, middle class. Uh, I've been all over the world. Uh, I've been at the highest levels of our government, and you just you don't get those opportunities. Even being in the military, you just it, it just doesn't come very often. And so, you know, my advice to them is to go for it because it's a it's an experience you will never forget. Uh, no, no matter how much longer you stay in the Air Force, and long after you get out of the Air Force. So there you have it: two extraordinary eyewitness views to history. Uh, now, General Richard Klump, who was a military aide to both Vice Presidents Gore and Cheney, and before that, uh, Stuart Conley telling the story of Clarence Jones and uh, his eyewitness to history in 1963 with the March on Washington. Uh, General Klump, thank you so much for joining us, and it's great to see you again. Thanks, Matt. It was great. And thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Josh King will be back next week, and for him, I'm Matt Bennett. Thanks very much.